Warren Wiersbe is a uh, former pastor and commentator, and he tells a story of an old Scottish pastor who had a, uh, a man in his congregation who was a barber by trade. And being a barber by trade, part of what he would do is he would offer sh- uh, shaves to the, the people that came into his shop. And it so happened one day that um, this man, who was a, a believer, a follower of Jesus, uh, had a, a man come into his shop, and, and the man got into the barber chair, and, uh, and the barber was all excited about his relationship with Jesus, and he lathered this guy up with the shaving cream and everything, whips out his straight razor to give this guy a shave, and turns and looks at the man, and out of his zeal for God and wanting to seize every opportunity to witness, he looks at the guy in the barber chair holding his straight razor and says, are you ready to meet God? man got up out of the chair and ran out of the, the barbershop. And that guy lost a customer that day. Zeal is good. Passion is good. That guy needed a little bit more tact and timing about it. But I got to say, I think maybe all of us could stand to be a little bit more like that guy. See, we not only should have a zeal and a passion for God, we must have a zeal and a passion for God. If Jesus doesn't move the needle for you, then Jesus doesn't do anything for you. If your relationship with Christ is devoid of anything emotional, then you don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's imperative that we understand that our relationship with Jesus involves more than just our intellect. It involves more than just the mind. It's more than just an intellectual assent to a set of propositional statements, but it involves our emotions, it involves our passions, it involves everything about who we are. In our passage tonight, which is just one verse, Romans 12, 11, we're going to see three marks of true discipleship. And you're going to read this verse and you're going to hear these things and go, really, that, that, that's it? It seems quite simple. And in the end, it, it really is, except that if you don't have Christ, what Paul is going to call you to do in this verse is impossible. And so on the one hand, it's been my prayer leading into this message that this particular sermon, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, would prove to be an encouragement to you. I also pray that if you are not in Christ, that this particular sermon would be an opportunity for you to walk away and make sure that you change that tonight. So take your Bibles, if you're not already there, and open up to Romans 12, verse 11. Romans 12, verse 11. We'll read the passage together because it's one verse, three statements that Paul makes here. It says this, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Let's take that first component there. Do not be slothful. In zeal. Slothful is a word that means to be idle or to be lacking ambition, to to be unmotivated, to be lagging behind. We might even say to be lazy. Scripture talks a lot about laziness, particularly in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature, in the book of Proverbs, we hear a lot about this guy, the sluggard. And in the book of Proverbs, there's quite a few, but just a a quick survey up there on the screen. These are this, uh, these are verses describing who the sluggard is. Proverbs 6, 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? 
O lazy one? When will you arise from your sleep? 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing because the sluggard does nothing. Proverbs 19.24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. And so he goes to get food and, and, and is so lazy that he puts his hand into the dish to get the food and, and, and can't even bring it back. So yeah, it's not even worth it. I don't want to burn the calories to bring my hand back up to my mouth. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. That's slothfulness. It's laziness. And there's a very practical element of that, right, as, as the book of Proverbs is talking about, not sleeping too much and not craving things and not doing anything about making those things actually happen in your life and and being willing to, to discipline yourself and to work when you're supposed to work, like plowing in the, the, the fall and the, the autumn so that you can reap a harvest, right? There's the practical side of, of that that can bleed into our lives, that laziness. But there's a spiritual laziness that Paul's warning us about in Romans 12, 11. And that's what he's arguing and that's what he's, he's exhorting us to avoid. He's saying, do not be slothful spiritually. Don't be lazy when it comes to your pursuit of Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus told a parable about three guys that were servants and the master of the house, when he left and went on a journey, he gave these three servants some of his money in the form of talents. And he entrusted these talents, these, these coins to these servants and said, here, take care of this while I'm gone. And the master returns from his trip and, and Jesus says the, the servants were called to give an account for how they stewarded the master's money. And the first one came forward and said, I took your, your money that you gave to me and I went out and I invested it and I turned a profit and here you go. You've got double what you had. And the master says, good, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Next guy comes up. He says, I, I, I did the same thing. I went out, I took care of it. I made wise investments and here you've got your money plus. Well done, good and faithful servant, entering into the joy of your master. But then the final one comes up and he says, I knew that you were a shrewd man and I was afraid. And so I took your talent that you gave me and I buried it. And so here you have back what is yours. And on the one hand, you might think that the master would say, well, good, at least you didn't lose it. But that's not what he says. He indicts the servant. He charges the servant. And this is what he says, Matthew 25, 26. Matthew 25, 26 says this, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful. That's our word, lazy. You wicked and lazy, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And so he charges this, this servant with the, the, the problem. And his problem is what we're talking about, what Paul's talking about here in Romans 12, 11. He's lazy. And the parable is God has entrusted you things. God has given you gifts and talents that are his, resources that are his, and said, hey, go and, and steward these things for me. Return an investment on what God has given to you. And Paul's saying, don't be like this servant. Don't be slothful. But Paul says, specifically, don't be slothful in zeal. Zeal. Zeal is a word that means eagerness, earnestness, enthusiasm, right? Diligence. Devotion, it, 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 earn, zeal is, is really kind of the opposite of, of being slothful. 
So really, if you're zealous at all, you're not slothful. So it's, it's a, a play here on words that Paul is making and saying, look, don't be slothful. Don't be lazy in being enthusiastic. Don't be lazy in being diligent. Don't be lazy in being eager and earnest. Zeal shows up negatively for us in Romans 12, 10, or sorry, 10, 2. Romans 10, 2, where Paul says, I bear them witness, speaking about the Jews here, that they have a, notice, they've got a zeal for God, the Jews do, but not according to knowledge. So he's pointing to the Jews and the Pharisees among whom he used to walk and count himself. And he's going, they're zealous for God. And, and Paul even says that he was that in Philippians 3, 6. He says, look, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And if you remember from our Philippians series, we talked about the fact that, that he was holding that up as something that was good in a sense because he was so passionate, so enthusiastic about God, so zealous for God that he looked at anything that was a threat to what he understood about God and he wanted to, to do everything possible to eradicate it. And so that included the church before Paul met Jesus. And so Paul was zealous, but just like he said in Romans 10 too, he was zealous without knowledge. He didn't have the, the right kind of zeal. Well, Paul here is calling us to the right kind of zeal. And zeal is, as I mentioned in the introduction, an imperative part of who we are as, as followers of Jesus. It has to be there for us. We see multiple times in the scriptures where zeal shows up. It's often translated as earnestness. And so we find it here in these passages, 2 Corinthians 7, 11. This is the passage where Paul is talking about godly repentance and what godly repentance looks like. And he says, you know what? If, if you're truly repenting, there's gonna be, and here's our word, an earnestness. It's the same word in the Greek. It's, it's the word that's translated zeal in our passage, earnestness here. This godly grief has produced in you. And then he goes on to talk about that earnestness. That, that earnestness, that zeal is gonna be to, to prove yourself innocent when it comes to that sin. So that you can look at your life and you can invite somebody to come look at your life and that sin is not going to be found anywhere in your life. You are earnest to truly repent. You're zealous for godliness. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. He says, look, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all zeal, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul's commending the, the, the Christians here in his letter to the Corinthians and he's saying, look, you're excelling in all of these things that are good, right? In speech, in faith, in knowledge. He also includes zeal in that, earnestness. And he commends that. That's good that you're excelling in this. 2 Corinthians 8, 8, the very next verse. He says, I say this also, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness, the zeal of others, that your love is also genuine. That, that zeal is there. It's part of our love for one another, that shows our affections for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 16, Paul says, thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care. The two words in English, one word in Greek, it's the, the word for zeal that I have for you. And, and so zeal is part and parcel of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. If we look at our lives and, and we say, I don't think that I'm zealous for, for God. I don't think that I would qualify myself as zealous for Jesus. Then we have a problem we have a problem. This is not anything to do with your personality, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. This has everything to do with your affections for Christ. And what scripture is calling us and what, what Paul is charging us to and saying, if, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be zealous for God. 
You're not going to be slothful in zeal. This isn't going to be an area of your life that you're neglecting. But you're going to be passionate for the Lord, enthusiastic for the Lord. You're going to have this Godward passion, this active devotion to God. Again, this is not just for the pastors and the teachers and the small group leaders. This is not just for the people that are outgoing in the group. This is for anyone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. You should be zealous for the Lord. This eagerness, this passion, this God-glorifying pursuit of Christ. Our first point tonight is this. Expend yourself in God-glorifying life. Expend yourself. Pour yourself out in God-glorifying life. That your life is characterized by a a full-on pursuit of Jesus. An enthusiastic, eager pursuit of, of, of Jesus. You can run and, and, and get into running just to, to be healthy, right? And, and go start running on your lunch break or running at night or running in the morning, or whatever, just to, to be healthy and lose weight. But you're not going to be able to go out there and compete with Olympic athletes if you do that. I don't care. You can run every day for 30 years and you're still not going to go out and compete with Olympic athletes. Why? Because they run every day for 30 years, but they're running with a goal in mind. And their goal in mind is they want to always be improving. If you're just out there running to lose weight, you don't really care about what your mile time is. You're just out there trying to to get a sweat worked up. But the Olympic athlete is going, I need to get better. I need to run harder. I need to run faster. And so that's going to impact my training regimen. I'm going to do intervals. I'm going to do sprints here. I'm going to to change things up. And, And that's why the guy that's just going out running to lose weight is never going to be able to compete with the Olympic athlete. The Olympic athlete is always thinking about, I need to get better. I want to get better. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about tomorrow. I'm more passionate about going out and being better tomorrow than I was today. That needs to be our mindset when it comes to Christianity. That's the type of runner we need to be. We're not running just to lose sin. We're running to become more like Jesus. We're running to become more godly. We're, we're running after him. We're fixing our eyes, Hebrews 12, on Jesus as we run the race. And so the question I have for you tonight is, are you running towards Jesus with that passion? Are you running your walk with Christ in such a way as to improve your spiritual pace? And so what does that look like? What does this God-glorifying life look like? Take your Bibles and flip over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, also written by the Apostle Paul quick survey of Colossians 3. I figured if we did Mark in five weeks, I can do Colossians 3 in five minutes. Paul says, if therefore you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's the foundation of your zeal right there, those first four verses. That's the foundation of this God-glorifying life, is the fact that you have been raised with Christ. You have been seated above with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ. You have been transferred from death to life. You've been transferred from the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. that has been this transformation in your identity such that now that is the foundation for why we're passionate about Jesus, why we want to live this God-glorifying life. 
because of what Christ has done for us. But Paul continues in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must also put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the, of the, after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The first four verses of chapter three are the foundation of our zeal. This is the sanctification of our zeal. This is that, that, that passion that we have for Jesus that cleanses us, that makes us more holy, that causes us to say, yeah, I want to put these things to death. This is not who I am anymore because who I am in Christ has, has changed. And so my zeal, my God we're, God we're living, my God glorifying life is going to cause me to put these things off. One more thing, though. He continues, he says in verse 12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the fruit of our zeal. This is the positive element of our, our, our zeal, our God-glorifying life, is we are putting on all of these things now. The Galatians, Paul describes it there as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This God-glorifying life sees more of that multiplied in our lives. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, you know what? You want to confirm your calling and election? Practice all of these different things and, and see that they're increasing in your life. That's what we're talking about here. Not being slothful in zeal, in our passion, in our eagerness, in our enthusiasm about Jesus. And that looks like this. Like saying, I've got a foundation for my zeal, which is the gospel, my new identity in Christ. And that zeal is gonna sanctify me. It's gonna make me more like Jesus. And that zeal is gonna bear fruit in my life. It's gonna cause me to, to put on things and to grow in that pursuit. Is that true of your life tonight? Are you living a God-glorifying life? Are you expending yourself in a God-glorifying life? Is Jesus the thing that you are most zealous about in life? Or is it something else? If it's something else, you're doing it wrong. There should be nothing else that you are more passionate about than Christ. Let me repeat that. There should be nothing, nothing, no one, no person, no job, no career, no marriage, nothing that you are more passionate about than you are Jesus Christ. He is, Paul says in Colossians 1, preeminent. 
which means he holds first place in all things. And so we must not be slothful in zeal. If there's one of these areas that you've been neglecting that I talked about in Colossians chapter three, then the homework for for you this week is to start thinking about, man, how can I become more zealous in that area? Maybe I need to remind myself of my identity in Christ, which all of us need to do regularly. And then I need to think about how that's sanctifying me. And then I need to look for the fruit that it should be bearing in my life. Do you have the zeal that Paul is calling for or have you fallen prey to being, becoming slothful in this zeal? You're sitting out there going, well, I, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I've been through it all. I, got, I did what Compass Kids are supposed to do and I got saved at Revival and then I got baptized afterwards and told everybody in the church how I got, this is my third time getting baptized. This is my 18th time getting baptized because I, I didn't, I never got it right because I didn't know I wasn't at Compass, but I, then I got here and I went to Revival. And like a good Revival kid, I got saved at Revival, and now I'm getting baptized. And so I'm fine. So back up off me, Pastor PJ. I don't need to be zealous anymore. I'm good. I, I'm concerned that some of y'all might not say that, but you're there. If, if, again, if your needle, needle for Jesus isn't moving, then, then you've got a problem. You need to be passionate about Christ. Well, this zeal is going to produce two different effects in your life, and that's the rest of this verse. I'm just going to make, the rest, make up the rest of our time. Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, but then he goes on and he says this next, be fervent in spirit. Be fervent in spirit. Fervent. It's a word that, that has the idea of boiling. You ever seen a boiling pot on a stove? And how it's just going crazy. The bubbles are, are, are just coming up to the top and popping like crazy. It's just active. There's energy there, right? If you look at a, just a, a pot of cold water on a stove, there's no energy there. But when you heat that up and it begins to boil, there's energy. There's fervency there. Look, a, a cold Christian heart has no energy to it. But Paul wants us to be fervent. He wants us to be boiling in our affections for Jesus. This spiritual fervor, showing enthusiasm, fully devoted to Christ. One commentator put it this way, be set on fire for Christ. I think we see this in a guy named Apollos from the book of Acts. Apollos in Acts chapter 18, we read about him. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus and being, notice, here's our phrase that Paul picks up on later. And being fervent in spirit, he's boiling for Christ. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I, I love Apollos here, because Apollos hasn't been to seminary. And Apollos hasn't been to a solid church where, where people are, are preaching expository sermons to him. And Apollos hasn't been through partners. And Apollos hasn't, hasn't gone to Awana. And he, he doesn't have the Timothy Award in his background. Uh, Apollos, though, he gets saved at some point. Somebody teaches him about Jesus. And Apollos is there going, man, I, I know I don't have the whole picture, but I got to tell people about Jesus. And so much so, so passionate about Jesus is Apollos. Then notice where he's going. He's not just going to like the leper camps going, hey, you guys want to hear about Jesus? He, he's not going to like the first Judaistic preschool that's, that's hanging out at the first Baptist church on the corner of downtown Jerusalem to teach the preschoolers about Jesus. He's going to the synagogues. He's walking into the enemy territory, so to speak. 
He's going, hey, you guys, let me tell you about Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila come upon him, and they, they, they see him, and they're like, man, this is, this is great, dude, but, but come over here for a second. Let's get you up to speed on some more training that, that you need, and then we're going to unleash you again. But man, Apollos is a bulldog. Uh, would that our churches were filled with Apollos's. I would love to have that problem, to, have to, to pull somebody aside and, hey, love your passion. Let's, let's equip you a little bit more, and then I, I'll let you go after that. But, dude, I, I, I love your passion. I love your fervor, your boiling energy for Jesus that you have. Right? That's Apollos. That's what we want more of, this eagerness, this enthusiasm. This is what fervency looks like. And it's specifically fervency, he says, in spirit. Okay, this is not the Holy Spirit, but this is the spirit that lives inside of each and every one of us, the, the spiritual part of us, that is, the immaterial part of us. This is the intangible part of you that inclines itself towards God. This is more than, that's why I opened the way I did. This is more than your brain. Okay, this is more than your intellect. This is more than, than, than synapses firing at this point. This is a, an immaterial part of you called spirit that inclines itself towards God. And if you are in Christ, you know what I'm talking about here. You know what it is to, 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 to have that intangible part of you. You've sensed that before. If you're not in Christ, let me tell you this. This is the part of you that's never been satisfied. This is the part of you that, that feels the, the crushing weight of the anxiety of what's my life right now. This, this is the part of you that says, man, I, I've always wanted something to, to, to be the answer. I need purpose. I need direction. That's the part that we're talking about. If you're in Christ, it's the part that inclines yourself to God, that directs you Godward. And so we want to be boiling with this, this passionate energy in the spirit. I think we see this in the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, when he says this, if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for look, here it is. This is this fervency in spirit. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul's saying, man, th 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 this is all I can think about. I'm not going to boast in this. I'm not looking for your kudos and your applause. I, 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 this is what I love. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what my life is about. Woe to me if I don't do this. That, that's, a, that's a fervency in spirit. I think we see it in Paul also towards the end of his life. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul's been arrested and he's standing trial. And in Acts 26, starting in verse 24, we read this. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I boldly speak. For I am persuaded none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And here's Paul. Here's the zeal here. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am yet without these chains. 
Paul's zeal right there, summed up right there. Look, yes, that's my goal. I've got this fervency in spirit to see everybody come to Christ. And he's talking to the king, and the king's going, you're out of your mind. And look, y'all, that's what fervency in spirit is going to look like to the world. It's going to look like you're crazy. It's going to look like you've lost your marbles, like you've gone bonkers. You're going to be out there, and you're going to be that, that, that guy that they're like, what is wrong with you? You're going to be that girl that they're like, I don't know how to relate to you. But that's where we want to be. If you're out there and the world doesn't see any difference in you, then how can you say I'm following Jesus? If you're out there and you're not catching side-eyed from your, your friends who aren't following Jesus, there's a problem. And look, if, if your Christian group of friends, when all you guys hang out together and you're like, hey, look at this, we're all Christians, isn't this great? If there's not a passion for Jesus that marks your conversation and your time together and the things that you like to do together, what are you doing? You're out of your mind, Paul. No, I'm not out of my mind. I'm not out of my mind. I just love Jesus. Again, this is not a trait that's only for the pastors or for the leaders or for the teachers. Y'all, this is for students and baristas and facilities. Kidsmen volunteers. This fervency of spirit should be something that characterizes and marks the true disciple of Jesus. That's why Paul says it here. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Our second point tonight is this. Truly love God. <clears throat> Sounds basic. It really is. It's like a caramel macchiato. I get that. But I, I, I couldn't put it any better. I think that's what Paul's driving at here. Truly love him. And, and I can't judge that for you. Right? Your small group leader can't really judge that for you. Your peers can't really judge that for you. But here's the deal. Y'all, God's word can judge that for you. Do you love this? Do you love seeing your life line up with this? Do you love seeing the fruit of this in your life? Again, this boiling passion. What do you have a boiling passion for in your life? What's always simmering at the forefront of your mind? One of the things I'm fervent about is my wife. I love her, right? This is a picture from our first date. Very first date right here. This is one of my most valuable possessions, honestly. And to everyone else, it's worth nothing. But this is a picture from my very first date with my wife. I thought her roommates were kind of weird for snapping a photo before we went out. But I'm so thankful they did. And now it lives in whatever Bible that I tend to preach out of. I'm passionate about her. I love her but I need to love Jesus more. I love my kids, but I need to love Jesus more. What do you love most in your life? And then let me ask you, do you love Jesus more than that? What would it look like for you to love Jesus more than that? 
Well, let me ask you this question because here's a diagnostic question for you. Does that get in your way of your pursuit of Jesus? Look at your calendars. You want to know what you love? Look where your time goes. You want to know if something's getting in your way of your love for Christ? Is it pulling you away from the church? Is it pulling you away from time in the word? Is it pulling you away from your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're continually choosing something else other than those things, then we're beginning to see something that we love more than Jesus, more than God. And Paul's saying we need to be fervent in spirit. We need to truly love God. Jonathan Edwards, brilliant mind, probably one of the most brilliant Christians that's ever walked the face of the planet. And he said this still. Okay, so, so philosopher, considered not just in Christianity brilliant, but even secularly brilliant. His, all of his resolutions that he made at the age of 17 and, and a few years after that, just amazing. I mean, the guy's mind was so sharp that he would go out on rides on his, his horse through the, the woods near his house every night, and he would wear an overcoat. And while he was on his rides, thoughts would come to him, and he would take numbered pieces of paper and pin them to his jacket as he's riding through the woods and then we would get home, he would go in reverse order and unpin all of them and be able to remember the thought that he had based on the number that was pinned to his coat. Y'all, if I don't have this with me, my thought's gone in like two seconds. <laughs> but still, as great as his intellect was, listen to how he talked about Christianity. Edward said this. He said, one of Satan's main goals is this, to propagate and establish a persuasion that all affections and sensible emotions of the mind in things of religion are nothing at all to be regarded, but are rather to be avoided and carefully guarded against as things of pernicious tendency. This he knows is the way to bring all religion to, here's the threat, mere lifeless formality. And effectually shut out the power of godliness and everything which is spiritual and to have all true Christianity turned out. So what Edwards is saying there is he's saying, look, what, you know what Satan wants you to do? Satan wants to convince all of you that to be affectionate about Jesus and to talk about emotion and love and passion for Christ, that, that it's, 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 it's suspicious and we need to just jettison all of it. And instead what Satan wants to substitute is mere lifeless formality when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. Y'all, we must fear that. Christianity is not sterile. Your relationship with God is not the cold pot of water on the stove. Edwards goes on, he says this. He says, as there is no true religion where there is nothing else but affection, okay, so he says you can't swing the pendulum all the way over. It's not all about affection and emotion, and that's a danger that we need to have as well. He says, as there is no true religion where there's nothing else but affection. He says this, so there still is no true religion where there's no religious affection. Again, if you have no affection for God, no internal fervency in spirit, no emotion towards the Father, towards Jesus, Edward says there's no true religion there. He goes on, he says this, if, if the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the what? 
the heart. They will affect the heart. The gospel will affect your love for Christ. This manner of slighting all religious affections is the way to exceedingly harden the hearts of men and to encourage them in their stupidity and senselessness and to keep them in a state of spiritual death as long as they live and bring them at last to death eternal. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most brilliant minds that's ever walked, saying it's more than just the intellect. Guys, it's more than just the fact that you know the gospel. Congratulations. So do the demons. Do you love Jesus? Do you love God? Has it gone from here to here? Has it gripped you with an affection for Christ? Let me ask you, have you ever been around somebody who's run a marathon or done CrossFit? If you don't know, then you haven't. Because those marathon runners, they'll slap the 26.2 sticker on the back of their car. Pastor Lucas ran a marathon. I don't think he's got a 26.2 sticker on the back of his car. I'm going to order him one and slap it on his car when he's not looking. But he's like the only guy that I know that hasn't told me that he's run a marathon. He's also like a triathlete, and I think he's Superman secretly, but whatever. (laughs) Or CrossFit, right? Like the hardest thing about CrossFit is not telling other people that you do CrossFit. Let's be like that with Jesus, maybe. Let's be that passionate about Christ that people are like, dude, have you ever been around PJ? Did you know he's a Christian? Yeah, obviously, that's like the most, that's what he talks about all the time. Do you know he loves Jesus? Really shocking. Let's be like that. Let's have it flow out of us like that because the things that we're passionate about, we talk about. Francis Xavier lived in in the 1500s, 1506 to 1552. And he said this about our love for God. He said, my God, I love thee. Not because I hope for heaven thereby, nor yet because who love thee are not lost eternally. Thou, O my Jesus, thou didst me upon the cross embrace. For me didst you bear the, the nails and the spear and the manifold disgrace and griefs and torment numberless and the sweat of agony, yea, death itself in all for me who was thine enemy. Then why, O blessed Jesus Christ, should I not love thee well? Not for the sake of winning heaven, nor of escaping hell. Not from the hope of gaining aught, that is anything. Not seeking a reward, but as thyself has loved me, O everlasting Lord. So would I love thee, dearest Lord, and in thy praise will sing. Solely because thou art my God and my most loving King. Loving him. Loving him. You guys understand that he's a person, right? That Jesus is a living person. Well, he's God. Yes, he's God. But he's the God that walked this earth, died on the cross for your sins, rose again so that you can live with him forever, and is currently seated at the right hand of God making intercession for you. Do you love him? Do you love him or do you just love the theology about him? Do you love him or do you just love his book? Do you love him or do you just love the benefits that you get from him? 
on that first date that my wife and I went out, we, we went and had dinner on the, at Chili's because I'm classy. And then we went to, then we went to the pier in Santa Monica and, and I, I, like she's beautiful. And I knew I was way out of my league. And I, I thought, man, before anybody else swoops in here and I was looking over my shoulder on the walk down there, just half expecting some masters, like the super guy to, to swoop in and be like, get out of here, peasant. <laughs> but we got to the end of the pier and, and I was like, look, I, I want to pursue you and date you with the intention of marriage because you're smoking hot and I, I think you're awesome and I want to I want to see what God might be doing here. But then I, I also made sure to tell her that I wanted to be a, a pastor because I knew she might look at me and think, well, this guy's, I mean, obviously he's going to make a lot of money someday, so I, I just want to be with him for his money. So I wanted to head that off and make sure that she knew I wasn't going to end up in, in that position because I wanted her to love me for me, not for the benefits that she would have in being in a marriage with me. As we got to love Christ for Christ and not just for the benefits that you get out of it. If your fuel for loving Jesus is simply that you're not going to hell, then you don't love Jesus. You love the benefits of Jesus. A love for Jesus comes from a relationship with Jesus. Do you remember the greatest commandment? Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What does God want most from us? He wants us to love him. If you go back to Deuteronomy, you read through the Old Testament, love precedes obedience. The affection precedes obedience. Peter's restoration in John 21, Jesus is walking on the beach with Peter. Peter, do you what? Love me. Yes, Lord, I love you. Obey me right? Then the command. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Okay, obey me. Here's the command. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Great. Then here's my command. Love, 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 love. Are you boiling for Christ? Are you passionate for him? Do you love him? Do you find that your affections are increasing for him regularly? Are you filling your life with things that stir your affections for Jesus? That cause you to love him more? Do you have people in your life that make you love Jesus more? Look, if you've got people in your life that aren't pushing you towards Jesus and making you love him more, get new friends. Get new friends. And if that's a group of y'all that are all together and all of a sudden you're looking around the table at each other going, we don't really help each other look, love Jesus very well, then, then go find new friends, all of you, go find new friends. And then maybe after that, you can come back and push each other more towards Jesus together. But life's too short for you to hang out with people that don't make you love Jesus more. One of the areas wherein our zeal and fervency is most clearly seen is in how we serve God, which is how Paul ends in Romans twelve eleven. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, Serve the Lord. Serve him. Service implies a humble obedience to one in authority. It's the final mark of discipleship here. There's an implied exclusivity that we are fully devoted to the one that we serve. In fact, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 6, 24. He says, look, no one can serve two masters. 
because of that, because there's a devotion issue here. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, in this context, Jesus says money. But he could have said you cannot serve God and, it could have been one of those create your own adventure books. Fill in the blank. Whatever you want to serve God and, Jesus is going to say you can't. Because service is full devotion. To serve the way that he's talking about here, the way that Paul is talking about here, is a full commitment to one in authority. And the one that's in authority that we want to serve is Christ. Why? Because of what he's done for us. We used to serve a different master. We used to serve the master of sin, Romans 6.6. We know that our old self, that's who we used to serve. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, might be rendered powerless so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's great. That's good news. The problem is there's a lot of Christians that think that now we're just free agents, that we've been freed from slavery to sin to just be autonomous. That's not the testimony of Scripture. That's not even the testimony of the rest of Romans chapter 6. Later on in Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about the fact that we have now become enslaved to God. He talks about it this way in 1 Thess 1. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve, there's our word, the living and true God. Look, if you are in Christ, you are still a slave. Just not a sin anymore. You're now a slave to God. And that's a good thing because he's a good God who loves you and gave himself up for you. He's a God who's working all things together for your good. He's a God who's guarding you by his power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. He's a God who's sealed you with the Holy Spirit as a promise, as a guarantee of your salvation. He's a God who's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's a God who will judge the living and the dead. He's a God who will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He's a God who will make all things new. To be a Christian is to be a servant. That's why Paul says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Everyone's a slave to something or someone. It's either self or savior. If you're a Christian, you're a slave to your Savior, you're a slave to Jesus, you're a servant of Christ, which again implies that full devotion to him. Our third and final point tonight is this, live fully for Jesus. Live fully for Jesus. That, that zeal, that fervency boiling within you, man, that should just overflow into you just living a life of devotion to Christ. And we sang it earlier tonight, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Do you remember even singing that, that line? Jesus is my life. Y'all, is Jesus your life? Or did you sing that hypocritically? Are you fully devoted to Jesus? In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper opens with a story about an older man who got saved late in life and and Piper said he remembers this because it was a man who was saved under his father's preaching. 
And he remembers the story of this man weeping on the front row of the church after coming to faith in Christ. And he's weeping because he's holding his head in his hands and he keeps saying over and over and over and over again, I've wasted it all. I've wasted it all. Because he's now in Christ, looking back over the life that he had lived, 70 some odd years, realizing that he had lived for everything but Jesus. And now his life was nearing its end. And he was lamenting. Even in the, 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 the shadow of the cross and the joy of salvation, still he's grieving and lamenting the fact that he lived for so many other things besides Jesus for so long. That he had been devoted to, to, to so many other pursuits, other people, other idols, and not Jesus. I don't want you to make the same mistake. I don't want you at the end of your life saying, I've wasted it. I want you to cling and hold fast to Christ, to be fully devoted to Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus had been saying some pretty weird things. He'd been talking about being the bread of life, and he'd been talking about hey, you want eternal life? You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And there are people pulling the e-brake as fast as they possibly could at that point, going, that's cool that you fed us with a few loaves and fish and all, but I'm out. You're saying weird things, Jesus. And so they left. Now, that was a metaphor in case some of you are here going, I don't have context for this and I'm a little skeeved out too. I might leave as well. That was a metaphor that Jesus was using to come to him in faith and full trust and, and to realize that we need him his death on the cross for eternal life, right? Original audience didn't get that. A lot of them did, and they leave. Jesus looks and turns to his disciples, and he says, do you, do you want to go away too? And Peter nails it. He says, Lord, to whom? Where should we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter got it. He was like, I don't understand it all, but I know enough to say that I'm all in with you, Jesus. And, and, and if that's where you are tonight, let me encourage you, that's fine. If you're there going, I don't have all the answers, welcome to the club. If you're there going, I, I don't think I fully understand it all, welcome to the club. But y'all here, you don't have to fully understand. You don't have to get it all. You don't have to know it all before you can come to Christ and say, I want you all, Jesus. And fully commit yourself to him. And live fully for Christ. You remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3? When he lists his resume, he's like, I, this is who I was. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people, the, the tribe of Benjamin, the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the zeal, I was a, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, as the law, I was a Pharisee, I was blameless under the law. You remember all that, right? And then what does Paul say at the end of it? He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That word for loss is the word for liability. He's not just saying I'm willing to let it all go. He's saying it's a detriment to me. Anything else that we're living for that's not Jesus is a detriment to you. It's a threat to you. That's what Paul's saying here. 
That if we're not all in for Jesus, whatever we're all in for, man, that is a hindrance to us and it's a threat and it's keeping us away from Jesus. And we need to look at it and say, this is loss. This is damage to me. Man, I don't want it. Because what do I want instead? I want Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want to know him. I want to know the power of resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings if that's what it takes. I want to become like him in his death, that by whatever means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul was fully devoted to Jesus to the point that he did give his life for it. And it was zeal for Christ and fervency for Christ that led to that full devotion to Jesus. It overflowed into that full devotion to him to say, take whatever you want, including my life, just give me Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. What does it look like to serve him? It looks like the first two points that we talked about tonight. Having that zeal, having that boiling passion, that love for Christ. It says, what does God want me to do? All right, I'm going to do it. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Romans 12, 11 is pretty short. But these are three non-negotiable markers, characteristics of what true discipleship looks like. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I hope you're encouraged by the simplicity of it. And I also hope you realize we don't need more than that. You're not going to graduate from this Awana book, so to speak, and need the next one. This is what it looks like for the rest of our lives. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. We're going to close with the song, Great Are You, Lord, one more time, but I'm going to pray as our worship team comes up. Father, give us such minds and hearts that are fully devoted to you. Give us a love for Christ that is evident to all around us. But Lord, more than it being evident to others around us, I pray that it would be true of who we are. I pray that nobody here would be putting on the facade, just putting on the front, but that we would all truly be fully devoted followers of Jesus, that we would all be disciples of Jesus. I pray that we would be zealous, that we would be fervent, that we would be serving you with everything that we are. Lord, you have given us everything. Even as we're about to sing, the, the breath that we breathe that fills up our lungs is a gift from you. How can we not be passionate for you? How can we not love you? And how can we not use all of that in service to you? I pray that we would. And I pray that you'd be pleased through it all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.